0: To his mission and it's so great that we get to be part of his mission both here where we are and and throughout the world you know one of the things you know I spent 10 years in Hungary as a missionary and one of the things that really drove me to become a missionary was just the sense that there is a body of Christ which is much bigger than our church which is much bigger than our city which is much bigger than our country but it's worldwide God's calling people to himself and there is a need for uh, workers in the harvest field and you know supporting those parts of the body that need help especially when we have resources and uh, you know we have a mission team going this summer to Hungary there are a few of us going and uh, two of those people who are going are actually leaving tomorrow so I'm gonna, we want to pray for them before they go. So Isaac and Seth, Nelson, you guys, come on down and we're going to pray for you. So, You know what's interesting? I've told this to Isaac a few times, but there's some, uh, some incredible parallels between my story and Isaac's story. See, I moved to Hungary when I was 18 years old for just a few months, and then I stayed there for 10 years. And I came back with a wife and some kids and as a pastor. So, it's kind of similar. And you know why I went over to Hungary? I went over there to help with the transition from an American pastor who had started a church and handed it over to a Hungarian guy. Which is exactly why Isaac went over there. So, it's uh, it's a little bit uncanny. And, you know, Lord have your way with Isaac. (laughs) That's all I have to say. He had his way with me. And uh, hey, God's sovereign, right? His way is the best way. All right. Come over here, both of you guys. Let's pray for these guys. Join me in praying for these guys. Heavenly Father, we lift up. Isaac and Seth to you. We lift up this whole team that's going but particularly these guys, Lord. I thank you that as young men they are stepping out to walk with you, to follow you, to lead people in your ways. And Lord, I pray that your anointing would be upon them. Lord, just pour out your spirit on them. Lord, give them wisdom. Help them to walk in a way, Lord, that draws people to you. Lord, I pray that you would make these these two young men into leaders in their generation. Lord, leaders while they're out in Hungary leaders when they return home. but I pray that they would be people who set the tone wherever they go. Lord, that they would be like thermostats that set the temperature wherever they are rather than thermometers that just conform to whatever surroundings they're in. Lord, I pray that you would do that in their heart, work that in them. Lord, I pray that you would use them for your kingdom, for your mission. Lord, form them into useful vessels and use them for your glory according to your will for your purposes, and accomplish all that you desire to see through them. Lord, I pray that you'd use them, their lives, and their witness in a powerful way in Hungary to draw people to themselves. And Lord, that in the process they too would be changed and even more conformed into the image of Christ. And we pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good trip, and I'll be seeing you pretty soon. We'll eat some goulash. Okay. So, we are journeying through Genesis. If you got your Bible, why don't you go ahead and open up with me to Genesis chapter 6. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. This is the story, story of Noah and the ark, or as I like to call it, the arky-arky. And, uh, you know, when you think about it, this story of Noah and the ark is... is um, it's kind of crazy that we tell this story to our kids, right? This is a really popular story, children's Bibles. I have a children's version of Noah's Ark for my kids. But really think about this. It's kind of bizarre that we really tell this story to our kids all the time. This is like the you know most famous story for our kids. Because really this is a story about judgment. This is a story about like mass death, right? Uh, this is a very distressing and disturbing historical event that we're talking about here. I mean, this is not a G-rated story uh, by any means. In fact, I would say at very minimum, PG-13, but quite possibly rated R. You know, there are some quite rated R stories in the Bible. This one's kind of borderline, PG-13 rated R here. Uh, It's full of violence, full of sexual perversion, and full of death, right? This is pretty serious stuff. What we're talking about here is millions of people and animals drowning to death. I don't want to freak you out. I just want to tell you what's going on here. You know, uh, aren't you glad that your kids are in children's ministry right now? I am. Honestly. Because this is like traumatic stuff for a kid. If they really get what's going on here, this is a traumatic story. Um, this is intense. I'm sure my kids are not ready for it. They would totally be traumatized. And of course what we do is that, you know, we found this uh, his historic... I don't know, archaeologists found this very historical photograph of Noah's Ark. And this is kind of what we go off of when we teach our kids about Noah's Ark, right? Uh, obviously, we're trying to, you know, make it kid-friendly. Uh, with picture of the Ark, you know, the giraffe sticking his head out of the top, this is a staple. Anytime you're talking about the Ark, there has to be a giraffe sticking his head out of the top window, and a lion smiling, uh, you know... It's like a floating zoo, and that's what we kind of, we kind of change the story a little bit. Hey, kids, look at all the animals are having a good time on a boat ride. That's really not what's going on here, you know? Uh, you know, I've never uh, done children's ministry and taught this story to kids, but some of you probably have. And what I'm wondering, what, I, what goes through my head when I think about this is this, do any of these kids, right, any of the preschoolers, do they ever just put two and two together, like what's going on here? Like, they ever just add things up and make some, like, you know, they're like, hey, wait a minute, you know, why are all those animals on that boat? And where's all the people? Because there's only a couple people on that boat. Where's all the people? And what about the animals that didn't fit on the boat? Where are they at, Dad? You know, and uh, and if you tell them, well, you know, the people sinned and God was judging the earth, would they ever figure out what that actually means, that that all the people and the animals who are not in the boat just drowned to death? I mean, actually, if you wanted to have a really accurate, true-to-life coloring page for our children's ministry, <laughs> which we don't, but if you did, you know, you'd have the giraffe with his head sticking out of the window and the smiling lion and then, like, a bunch of dead bodies floating in the water, okay? This is really the, the reality of it. I'm not trying to over-dramatize this. This is the reality of what we're talking about. You know, I was thinking this morning I was going to see if I could get one of those flannel boards up here and kind of draw it out for you guys. But I wasn't able to work it out. Maybe next time, you know, but... Anyway, it's hardcore. No one wants to give their kids a coloring page that looks like that because they would have nightmares. Any kid would. And what is the point of this story? Here's what it comes down to. This is what we're going to be talking today. It is about salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. And as we're going to see, the story of Noah and the ark, it gives us a glimpse of the gospel in a very powerful way. And through this story, we see the heart of God revealed, and we get to know the nature of God in a deeper way. So we're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter, and then we're going to pray and get into it. So, read along with me if you got your Bible. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now Noah... But Noah found favor, or grace, in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. the length of the ark three hundred cubits, its breadth fifty cubits, its height thirty cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. Set the door of the ark on its side or in its side. Make with it a lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh which is in the breadth. Of which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you this sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with humble hearts and Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us. We ask that you'd show us if there's any wrong way in our hearts, Lord, anything that you want to change or challenge, Lord. We want to be totally submitted to you. We want to declare that you are Lord of our lives. Lord, you have permission to speak into our lives. You have permission to call us out on stuff. And Lord, we just ask this morning that, Lord, you would meet all of our needs. Lord, you are the one who knows what they are, and you are the one who is alone capable of meeting those needs. Lord, for those who need comfort, please bring comfort. Lord, for those who need conviction, Lord, bring us conviction. For those who need a challenge, Lord, bring us a challenge. And Lord, in all things, let us through this end up knowing you better and having a a fuller picture of the gospel, being reminded of the glory of the gospel and the glory of who you are and how great your love is for us. We pray that you do all that by your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is a uh, meaty section we're studying today. We're not going to be able to cover every aspect of it, but uh, some of it we're going to actually roll over into next week. Um, But today... I want to focus on three parts. I'm going to break this down into three parts. Number one, we're going to talk about the problem of sin. Number two, we're going to talk about the grace of God. And number three, we're going to talk about the obedience of faith. So the problem of sin, the grace of God, and the obedience of faith. Let's start out by talking about the problem of sin. And this this really even itself has two points that I'd like to point out. The first problem of sin is the destructive nature of perversion. And the second problem of sin is the pain of God. So let's talk about those two things. The first thing we read in this chapter is that at this time, man began to multiply greatly on the face of the earth. What we're seeing here is a population boom. Now remember back as last week, we had a really exciting chapter in which we read a lot of names. It was kind of like reading a phone book, but we did see the gospel in it. And uh, we read that we read about 1,656 years of human history. That's a long time, right? Uh, and considering that these people, it says they live significantly longer lives than we do nowadays, that means they had a lot of time to have a lot of kids. And, uh, and these people did. They had a bunch of kids. And practically... What we're talking about here, you know, people have tried to calculate it, they guesstimate it. What we're probably talking about here is a world population of quite possibly millions and millions of people. Some have even suggested numbers up to tens or even hundreds of millions. I don't know. I wasn't there. But the point of this is there were a lot of people, and people were multiplying. A population, boom. Now think about this. I checked uh, some websites yesterday. Uh, and I found this information about our world's population now. All right? It took until the year 1800, roughly, for the world population to reach 1 billion people. But then it only took until 1927 for the world population to double to 2 million people. And then in 1960, we reached 3 billion. 1974, we got 4 billion. And then it only took to 1987 to get five. In 1999, we reached 6 billion, and then in 2011, we reached 7 billion people. So it's uh, taken a lot less time to multiply the number of people on the earth, right? It's exponential growth, it's pretty clear. It's estimated that in 2011 alone, the world population grew by 78 million people, because roughly 135 million people were born, 57 million people died. So just like in Noah's day, we also live in a time of huge population growth, right? The number of people on the earth is multiplying exponentially. And as we talk about the days of Noah today, what I want you to see is that uh, the days that Noah lived in are very much similar to the days that we live in. There are a lot of parallels. And the reason that's interesting is this. Jesus said This thing in in Matthew chapter 24. He said, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So the point here is this, we can know that we are living in days that are close to the end, the second coming of Christ, because they are very similar, many parallels to the days that Noah lived in. And one of these ways, as I mentioned, was this exponential population growth. Now if you remember back to Genesis 1, when God created man. Remember he created him and it says that God blessed him and told him to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Well now they've done that. But God's not very happy. Why? They've multiplied. They were fruitful. They subdued the earth. But here's the problem. Between that blessing and the point we're at in our, in our study today, between then and now, there was an important detail that really entered the picture and changed everything. And that detail is sin. Sin entered the world. Sin entered human history. And the result was corruption and sin and death. See, this is the problem. The problem is the problem of sin. And one of the biggest problems of sin is that it's inherited, right? We're born sinners. The scriptures say that we are sinners from our mother's womb. And so what we read here is that man had multiplied on the earth. There are probably multiple millions of people living on the earth, and every single one of them is a sinner who sins, Right? The first issue in regard to the problem of sin is the destructive nature of perversion. God sees their hearts. He's the only one who can look straight into your heart and see what's really going on. And he looks into these people's hearts and what does he say? He says, Every intention of their thoughts, of the thoughts of their hearts, were evil only continually. And you know what sin does? It comes into our lives. It corrupts our hearts. We're born with this corrupt heart. And then as our hearts are corrupt, it flows into our intentions and our desires. It corrupts them as well. And if we act on those sinful desires, those sinful intentions of our hearts, we commit acts of perversion, what we do is we actually destroy ourselves. We, we destroy other people around us by our actions. There is a very destructive nature to perversion. Not only in in every possible way, every part of who we are, physically, emotionally, and of course spiritually. Notice what it says in verse 11. I'd like to just reread this. It says this, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now here's what I want to point out to you. Interesting thing. This is what what I get from reading books. Uh, It says the word corrupt, right? I have these nice dictionaries. What is the word corrupt in Hebrew? It's the word shakath. That's a fun word to say. And then that's the word corrupt, shakath. And then, what is the word for destroy? It is the word shakath. It's the same word. And here's why am I telling you that? You don't need to know that, right? But here, here's why you need to know that. There is an intentional irony in this text. God, you know, inspiring this text, He put this irony in here. He says, "I will destroy those people who have destroyed themselves already. I, they have corrupted themselves, and I will only make it complete." He says through their perversion these people have destroyed themselves they've destroyed the earth in other words he's saying i will destroy those people who have already self-destructed they've already destroyed themselves and that's what we see here that's my point is that sin is destructive and it destroys that's what we see here in noah or in genesis chapter 6 sin never happens in a vacuum Sin always has these crazy ripple effects. Your sin does not just affect you. My sin does not just affect me. It affects all the people who are connected to me. It's very effective in a destructive way. And the problem of sin is essentially this we're all born in sin. We're, we sin, we commit sin, acts of perversion because we are sinners by nature and our perverse, sinful actions destroy us. They destroy others around us in every possible way, physically, emotionally, spiritually. That's what we see. God looks at the earth and he says, they've destroyed themselves with their perversion. And, and the, notice this. What exactly was this particular perversion that was rampant in Noah's day? Well, there are a few things we can gather. Uh, what we gather, you know, there are a few sections that talk about Noah. What we gather from all these sections together, you know, Jesus talks about it, Peter talks about it. What we get is that the, the particular perversion in this day was a form of hedonism and sexual lewdness that had no concern at all for God whatsoever. In fact, here in Genesis six we read this very cryptic description here at the beginning of the chapter very cryptic description of the perversion of Noah's day, And, and what it says is that the sons of God looked upon the daughters of men and saw that they were beautiful, and they married whomever they pleased. And it also says then, you know, that the Nephilim were on the earth at this time, the great men of renown. Now what does all that mean? Now, there are two schools of thought, but the nice thing about these two schools of thought is that they both boil down to essentially the same thing, which is sexual perversion. All right, let me lay it out for you. The first school of thought is that the sons of God are fallen angels, because the term sons of God is used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to angels. The word Nephilim means fallen ones. We also read about Nephilim later on in the Bible, in the book of Numbers, and, uh, you know, where they are the giants in the promised land. They're called the Nephilim. So, uh, people conclude that the Nephilim are demon children. They are the offspring of fallen angels sleeping with human girls. But again, what does that boil down to? It boils down to sexual perversion. So, girls... You know, don't be going out with demons. Dads, don't let your daughters go out with demons. This should be like a basic part. I was talking with Jeff. We're going to make this a basic part of our marital counseling from now is determining whether or not the, the man that the lady wants to marry is a demon or not. Okay? Uh, girls, do not be going out with demons. Do not be sleeping with them. And do not be having their babies. Okay? Uh, so the other school of thought is... That the sons of God are the godly guys who who know the Lord, who walk with the Lord, and that the un, so that the uh, the daughters of men is a reference to the unbelieving girls out there, right? They were good looking, they don't know, but they don't know the Lord. They don't walk with the Lord. They're just heathen girls who are very attractive. They're hot, you know. That's what it says. That they looked at them, they were beautiful, but they were heathens, right? And I'll tell you. The jury is still out on this one, so you have permission to seek the scriptures and determine for yourself what it was. And then when we all see Jesus face to face, we can just ask him, how did that go down? Are we talking about demon children? Are we talking about just, you know, Christian, or you know, believing guys going out with non-believing girls? The jury's out. Seek the scriptures for yourself. I'll tell you what, I lean towards the second interpretation And I'll tell you why. Uh, The reason is because Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, that angels do not get married. So I think that's pretty conclusive for me. Another reason is that the theme of uh, believers not marrying unbelievers is a constant theme throughout the Bible, which is always linked with the idea of people turning away from the Lord in their hearts. Now, where does that leave us with the Nephilim? Uh, Well, all it says here is that they were men of renown. And don't forget that these Nephilim here in Genesis chapter 6, they can't be related to the Nephilim in numbers because a really big thing happened between those two and it was a flood that killed all the Nephilim, right? So those Nephilim in numbers cannot be uh, related to these Nephilim here in Genesis chapter 6. So that's my take on it. I've done a lot of wrestling with the text. I did a lot of reading this week to find out what exactly is going on here. Could be talking about fallen angels having relations with human girls. Could be talking about godly guys hooking up with heathen girls. We're just going to have to ask Jesus about it when we see him face to face. But think about this what does this tell us if it is talking about godly guys getting together with heathen girls? Now, this was one of the main things that God told his people, Israel, never to do. It was one of the things which Paul the Apostle wrote in the New Testament that believers should not do. And what it means is that this was such a perverse, far-gone, sinful society that even the people who were believers in God, even the people who supposedly knew the Lord and walked with the Lord, they were getting together with non-believers and corrupting themselves sexually. They were doing immoral things. And where does that leave us with the Nephilim? Well, they were men of renown. What does that mean? means they were the superstars of their day. They were the heroes of their culture. They were the movie stars. They were the rock stars. They were the hip-hop stars. They were the professional sports players of our day. The famous people, the people that the others watched and followed and imitated and looked up to as role models. So in this case... Just take it for what it's worth. Here's the picture of human society, perhaps, that this is giving us in the day of Noah. The people who supposedly knew the Lord were not walking with the Lord. Godly guys were hooking up with, uh, you know, godly guys and girls were hooking up with godless men and women, compromising morally and sexually, and they're, they're looking up to godless men as their role models. Now, does that not describe the day that we live in today? It sounds a lot like the day that we live in today. A lot of people who have some knowledge of the Lord and of his ways, they're not walking with him. They look to ungodly people as their role models. And many of them are getting involved in perversion with ungodly people, right? And it's worth us asking ourselves the question, which I think is very valid. Who are my role models? Ask yourself that. Who are the people that you want to be like that you follow after you know hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 it tells us that if we want to be godly people who walk with the lord we need to seek out godly role models and follow them as they follow the lord so for many young people today you know even christian young people their only criteria in seeking out a boyfriend or girlfriend is is this they got to be number one good looking number two they got to like me And number three, they have to have a pulse. You know what I mean? That's it. If you have a pulse, and you like me, and you're good looking, then we can do this. This is awesome. That would be perfect, you know? I don't care if you're a total heathen, you know, whatever. If you're good looking, and you like me, and you're alive, that'll do, right? It shouldn't be that way for God's people, right? And many people today, even Christian people, they're looking up to role models who are not godly people. who are are prominent people in our culture and our society, and we just follow them because everybody else is following them, but they're not godly role models. And here's the scary thing, and this is what it really boils down to. The scary thing about this section is that we see where this kind of compromise leads to. These people, as they stopped walking with the Lord, as they started compromising and blindly conforming to the culture of their day— They corrupted themselves, and their perversion eventually destroyed them. Not only physically, not only emotionally, but spiritually as well. Because they too, when God looks upon the earth, they too, he looks on them and he sees that they too have destroyed themselves through their perversion. And because of that, they too will be swept away in the judgment that God's about to bring on the earth through a flood. And that brings us to the next aspect of the problem of sin which I mentioned earlier, and that is the pain of God. And that is such a, such a profound and striking aspect of this story, the pain of God. You know, one of the greatest problems of sin that we see in this story is that it brought grief to the heart of God. In verses 5 and 6, it says this, The Lord saw the, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. And here's the thing. There's the necessity for judgment, but here's the problem with judgment. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Why would human sin grieve the heart of God? Isn't he just disconnected? Isn't he just aloof? Isn't he fine no matter what we do? Here's the thing. It's because of the nature of God. Because God is at the same time. He is the fullness, right? He is the definition of holiness, which is all that is good and right and pure. He is complete. That's what it means to be holy. He is at the same time a God of truth and at the same time a God of love. He is at the same time a lover and at the same time a judge. And we see those things seem so incompatible, but in the, in the person of God, we see them come together in perfection. That is the definition of what it means that God is holy. Because God is holy, because God is righteous, sin separates, cuts people off from him. Sin and violence require judgment. And the earth was full of violence, we read. But because God is a God of love who has a heart of a father towards us, that separation actually causes him distress. It causes him pain. It grieves his heart that judgment is necessary at all. This word grieved, when it it says that God was grieved to the heart, this is such an interesting word. Very strong word, especially if you you cross-reference it with where other places it's used in the Bible. It means this. This is the definition of this word, which is, Uh, translated grieved it means bitter anguish deep unfulfilled longing and deepest frustration this is the specific word which is used in isaiah chapter 54 verse 6 to describe the feeling that a wife feels when her husband leaves her and abandons her you know like a wife married young only to be deserted and your spirit was filled with pain that's the grief we're talking about here. To be dis- I can only imagine this, but to be deserted by your spouse, it has to be must be one of the most painful and traumatic and crushing things that could possibly happen to a person. And God here, he, he goes as far as to use this word to describe the pain that he feels in his heart over sin and human rejection of him. And that is because of this. God has bound up his heart with us. He has bound up his life and his heart with us. And that's why he uses the metaphors that he uses in the Bible to describe his relationship with us. That's why he uses the metaphor. He says that he is the husband and his people are his wife. In the New Testament, it becomes that Christ is the groom and we are his bride. You know, in other places, of course, you know the metaphor of the father. He says these are the things which describe my affection, my feelings towards you. He has bound up his heart with us as a husband, as a groom, as a father. He didn't have to. He didn't have to create us in the first place. He didn't create us out of need or necessity. He wasn't lacking anything. He wasn't lonely. That's not why he created us. But once he did create us, he chose to knit his heart to us so much that his joy is deeply tied to us. So much so that when he sees something going wrong with us, he experiences pain. He is grieved in his heart. That's what we see in this verse. Not just sadness, not just, oh, that's a bummer, but I've got seven billion other people to worry about. No, it's grief. The most shattering, deepest pain possible. That's what it's describing here. Think about some of the things that God says about how much he loves you in the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 49 verse 15, he says, Can a nursing mother forget the baby at her breast? And he says, It is more likely that a nursing mother would just stop loving the baby that she's nursing than that I would ever stop loving you, that I would ever stop caring about you. And what, and what he's saying is that my love for you, my affection towards you, my care for you is greater than even the most intense love that you can possibly imagine. That is a very radical statement. That is a very radical image to invoke in our minds of a woman nursing a baby and then just, you know, totally forgetting about the baby. And God saying, that, could, that never happens, but I... That, that's much more likely that that would happen than that I would ever stop loving you. God does that. He invokes that image in our minds because he wants us to get the sense, even though we can never grasp it fully, he wants to use the most radical images to help us understand that how much he loves us, how much he cares for us. And the picture is that he loves us and cares for us infinitely more than we could ever love or care about him. You know, that's the picture we get here in Genesis 6. These people whom God created, they all turned away from him. They all told him to get lost and leave him alone because, and just get out of their lives because they wanted to do whatever they wanted to do and they wanted to destroy themselves. And it grieved God to his heart. That's why it's been said, I think this is a profound statement. Think about it, let it sink in. The tears of God are the meaning of history. The tears of God are the meaning of history. I'll explain what that means. Because in the Garden of Eden, God knit his heart to us in love. As a husband, as a groom, as a father. And what was our response? We told him, we don't love you. We don't trust you. We don't need you. So go away. We want to do our own thing. That is the essence of Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, which is the story of Adam and Eve sinning. But the question is, why is there a Genesis 8? Remember Genesis 8 and 9, where God comes looking for them in the garden. Where are you, Adam? Come, come talk to me. Why is there a Genesis 8? Why is there a Genesis 9? Why, is, why did the story not just end right there? Adam and Eve eat the fruit, their eyes are opened, and they just die. Why not? Here's why. You know why, God, God could have just destroyed sin. He could have got rid of his own pain, which is caused by human sin, in that moment, just got it all done with. Why? Why is there a Genesis 8, 3 verse 8? Why is there a Genesis 3 verse 9? Here's why. Because God chose to weep. God chose to suffer the pain caused to his heart by human sin. Instead of just destroying mankind right there, which he had every right to do, he decided to suffer some more. Why? So he could save you and save me. He decided to absorb the pain that came to him as a result of our sin and rebellion and decided to make a way to provide salvation and redemption for us. But in order to be saved, right, God had to suffer over and over this deep pain caused by human sin and rebellion. A million times over, he could have put an end to his pain by putting an end to the human race, by simply wiping us out. He wouldn't have to bother with us anymore. He wouldn't have to feel anything anymore. But over and over, he chose to absorb that pain and weep and even prolong his suffering so that he could make a way for some to be saved and redeemed and restored and have eternal life. He did it, why? Because of his great love for you. Because of his great love for me. And all of those who would respond to the gospel and put their faith in the gospel and become children of God and friends of God and the bride of Christ that he designed us to be, that he created us to be. In other words, this phrase that the tears of God are the meaning of history, it means that the only reason there is human history, the only reason we are here today is because God was willing to suffer the pain which was caused to his heart by human sin. He could have ended it all at any time, just by wiping everybody out. He could have ended it right here. He said, I'm going to wipe everybody out. But what did he do? He said, no, I'm not going to wipe everybody out. I'm going to save Noah. And the thing is this, Noah knew the Lord. We read about Noah that he was a a decent guy, but he was also a sinner. So not only what got on the boat with, with Noah, right? The animals, his family, and one other important thing got on the boat with Noah. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It was sin. Sin got on the boat along with Noah, and God closed the door, knowing that He closed sin in there and that it would go on, and that because of that, His heart, the grief caused to His heart by sin, would continue. But He also knew it was the only way that He could provide salvation for those who would walk with Him and trust in Christ. Isn't that a profound thing to think about? Isn't that amazing? Doesn't it just give you a big view of God? What, what when all this happens, what all this means is that God suffers more anguish and pain than anyone else as a result of human existence. Yet he chose to let it happen. To let human history go on, it causes God infinite suffering. But why does he do it? Why doesn't he just end it all? No more pain, no more being grieved to the heart. There's one simple and very Profound reason as this, because he loves you more than you could possibly imagine, more than you could possibly comprehend. He is so dedicated to you that you can't even imagine it. And he just wants to embrace you. You know that? He wants you to fulfill the fullness of the purpose with which he created you. And he wants you to thrive and be joyful and know him and have eternal life. And he doesn't only want that for you. He wants that for every one of those 7 billion people who lives on the earth today. And he lets human history just roll on, even though it causes his heart infinite pain because of the sin of human beings. Why? Because he wants people to have the opportunity to be born again and saved and redeemed and regenerated through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Why did God save Noah? Not because Noah wasn't a sinner, but for very one, one very simple and obvious reason, because God is gracious. God saved Noah, why? So that God could save me, and so that God could save you. If God didn't save Noah, he can't save me. Right? If Noah dies, then I'm never born, then you're never born. In fact, Jesus never comes to the earth. No one is ever redeemed from the curse of sin. No one is ever born again. No one ever goes to heaven. God saved Noah. Why? Because God loves you. And God loves me. And God loves a whole lot of other people who don't even walk with him yet. But they will. They will respond to the gospel. Some people don't like the story of Noah. They don't like the story of the flood at all. Why? Because they do not like the idea of divine judgment. They do not like the idea of God judging people for sin. But here are a few things to think about in uh, taking into consideration in regard to divine judgment. Number one, that God, as the giver of life, is the only one who has the right to take away life. You don't have the right to take away someone's life. That's why you go to jail, right? But as the giver of life, as the sustainer of life, God is the only one who decides how many more breaths you're going to take before your time on earth here is over. And he has every right to do so. Number two, we have all sinned against God. The wages of sin is death. And that means this, that God does not owe me anything. And therefore, everything I get from God, whether it's breath in my lungs or sunshine on my face or an embrace from someone I love or food to eat or or a roof over my head, that is all grace. He doesn't owe me a single thing. The only thing that I actually deserve is death. Immediate, instant, eternal death. That's the only thing I deserve. If I say, God, give me what I deserve— well, that's what he could give me because that's what I actually deserve. Therefore, everything which I get, which is not that, which is not immediate, instant, eternal death, it is a gift from God. It is grace simply because he is loving and kind. The story we see, uh, in this story, we see the grace of God in a major way. In verse 8, we read that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor, it's the same word as Grace. This is the first time we see the word for grace used in the entire Bible. In other words, Noah was saved. Why? Because God was gracious to him. But God wasn't just gracious to him. He was also gracious to the other people in the story. The the difference, though, is that those people didn't receive his grace. They didn't accept it. They rejected it. One thing we know is that Noah, as he's building this boat, right, he was actually a preacher of righteousness. Second Peter 2, verse 5, it says that Noah was a herald of righteousness or a preacher of righteousness. Now, you can imagine this guy is building this gigantic boat. You know, around the world, a few people have recreated the ark based on these specifications. One is in Holland. I think there's one in China, and I believe there's one here in the U.S. Uh, it was gigantic, right? It was huge, and it took him a really long time. And during that time, you can imagine that for miles around, neighboring cities, neighboring countries, I don't know, kingdom, kingdoms, they had, you know, people heard the story about that crazy guy over there who's building that gigantic boat. And, you know, people had, would go and ask him, you know, news reporters, like, hey, Noah, tell us, what are you doing here? And he would say, well... God spoke to me and told me he's going to judge the world because of sin. So if you want to be saved from the wrath that's going to come, you need to repent of your sins and walk with the Lord, and we got room for you on the boat too. And I'm sure that news got around, and people would talk about it and say, hey, have you heard about that crazy guy building that gigantic boat? Yeah, he says that God's going to wipe us all out and judge us because of our sin. And then they said, hmm, that's interesting. You want to go get a pizza? What's on TV tonight? You know what I mean? That was kind of their response. They didn't repent. What that means is that God was gracious. He didn't destroy the people right then. He gave them 120 years to repent. And he gave them a preacher to tell them to repent. And tell them what was going to happen and how to avoid the judgment. But no one responded. Just imagine this. Noah is essentially an evangelist calling people to repentance. And no one ever responds. He's a preacher And there are only seven people who attend his church and they all have the same last name, you know? That couldn't have been easy. That had to be really difficult. At the end of the chapter, we, we read that Noah obeyed God in everything that God commanded him. Everything. For 120 years, Noah faithfully obeyed Everything that God commanded him to do. Some of us are impressed with ourselves because we obey God, you know, like five out of eight times a week. You know what I mean? Or, or most of the time. Or, you know, in the big things. Or, or for 15 minutes straight without breaking it for real. But Noah obeyed God in everything for 120 years. And you know what it takes to obey God consistently and to do that? It takes faith. This is obedience that comes from faith. Noah obeyed because he really believed that what God said was true. I'm sure he must have doubted it sometimes. Maybe some of you guys can relate to that. Like when there was no rain and Noah was like, man, I live in the desert and people are making fun of me and I really hope I heard from God because if not, this is kind of a big endeavor. You know what I mean? I wonder if sometimes he thought... Hey, did I really hear from God or was that just my own crazy imagination thinking that I heard from God and taken on this huge project? Did I make a big mistake by getting started in, the, in this whole endeavor? I'm sure he doubted it sometimes, but he moved forward in faith and he obeyed by faith, faith that God had spoken to him, faith that what God said was true and was going to happen. You know, that true faith is based on knowing the character of God, that he's loving that he's good, that he's true, and he's faithful. And true faith will be manifested in trust, and trust is manifested in obedience, and ultimately in submitting yourself to the lordship of God in your life. I remember uh, when I got married, right? Not long after I got married, uh, Rosemary and I, we were driving around in the car, and uh, and Rosemary got nervous, because probably because I was driving crazy. I don't know why. I don't remember. But... She got nervous, you know, that I didn't know what I was doing or where I was going. So she actually reached over and, and grabbed the steering wheel and tried to turn the car. Now, uh, I'm not upset about that because we didn't crash. But um, I guess that she did that. Why? Because she didn't trust me, right? But that was a long time ago. And, and now as she's gotten to know me, she's grown in trust towards me, and and she's never grabbed the wheel ever since then. And, and that's what happens. As we get to know the heart of God, who calls himself our husband and groom and father, we realize that his heart towards us is love beyond anything that we can comprehend or imagine. And when we really get that, we begin to trust him. We begin to say, okay, Lord, I'm not gonna grab the wheel anymore. I'm not gonna Do that. I'm just going to let you be Lord of my life. And I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to let you lead and I'm going to obey you. Why? Because I see your heart towards me. I see the heart that you have for me is only love and good intention. So let me wrap it up for you. What do we see in this story? We saw the problem of sin, we saw the grace of God. And we saw the obedience of faith. You know, the story of Noah's Ark, it is the story of salvation through judgment. We have a God who is at the same time a lover and a judge, a God of truth and holiness and a God of love and compassion. And what we see here is that he judges sin while at the same time making a way for us to be saved. Noah's story is the story of our salvation. Noah will go inside the Ark, the doors will shut, and the judgment... That is coming rightly upon Noah too. It will come. The flood of judgment will beat against the boat. The waves of judgment, the thunder, the lightning, they will all slap against the boat, but they will not strike Noah himself. Why? Because he is inside the boat. The flood drowned those who were not inside the boat, who did not walk with God, but those same floodwaters lifted Noah up because he was inside the ark. Do you see the picture? This is salvation through judgment. It is the picture exactly of what happened to us on the cross. It is a picture of the gospel, salvation through judgment. On the cross, we see justice and love utterly satisfied. Jesus is judged for our sin so that we can be saved. The ark itself is a picture of Christ. The judgment and the flood came upon Noah, but because he was in the ark, the ark took the brunt force of that judgment, and Noah was saved. And in the same way, if we will climb into Jesus Christ, if we will climb into what he has done for us by faith in the finished work on the cross, and we will live in that place, then the waves and billows of judgment, which were meant for you because of your sin, They will not destroy you, but they will beat against him. They will slap against him because you are hidden in him. You will be safe in him. God's word tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Whereas those those waves of judgment would have destroyed you, he is the one alone who could take it. And handle it. And if you are in him, the judgment that came, that would come upon you for your sin, the judgment of the sin of the world, instead of crushing you and sinking you, what does it do? It actually lifts you up. You're not only saved from judgment, but you're reconciled to the Father, and you gain eternal life. That's the gospel. God's good. Amen? Let's stand and pray. And then we're going to respond in worship and I would encourage you that I love that idea of let's just get a glimpse of the gospel and then let's respond to God in worship so let's do that and let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your love towards us Lord it's more than we can comprehend and Lord we thank you that you have knit your heart to us so much we thank you for the metaphors you use to describe your affection towards us Lord thank you that you are like a husband you are a groom you are a father But thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you are perfection, Lord. You are holy. You are just and compassionate. You are holy and loving. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that through your judgment, we are saved. We are eternally grateful for that. And we just respond to that, Lord, by giving you our lives, by submitting our lives to you and saying, Lord, you take the wheel. You be Lord of my life. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.